Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. His death in a Russian prison and the fixation and fear of one man only underscores the weakness and rot at the heart of the system that Putin has built. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says Putin is responsible for the death of Alexei Navalny behind bars. It's Friday, February 16th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we're getting reaction from Washington and around the world to the news about Navalny, what it means for Americans, Russians, and fans of the opposition figure the world over. Also, a little later, we're going to hear from the archivist for the Grateful Dead about the band's enduring appeal, which seems only to be growing nearly 30 years after the death of Jerry Garcia. Once you get a dose of dead, once you're, as we say, on the bus, very few people exit that bus door. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a good trip to be on. Playing in the band, coming up at about 20 minutes. But first... Russian state media reported this morning that opposition leader Alexei Navalny died today in the Polar Wolf penal colony in Siberia. We heard Secretary of State Blinken at the top of the show pointing the finger right at the Russian government. He made those comments at the Munich Security Conference, where world leaders are meeting to discuss international security, including the Russian war on Ukraine. The Washington Post's Mary Ilyushina is here to help us make sense of it all. She spoke to Scott Tong. Remind us how prominent Navalny was, how he rose to this prominence? Well, Navalny's been kind of campaigning against Putin for over a decade now. Uh, he is the most um, well-known, well-regarded, I guess the most popular opposition politician that Russia has seen in, I would say, the past 20 years, honestly. Um, he... Um, you know, rivaled against Putin in many ways. He tried to run in elections and he was always barred um, from running. Um, he authored many investigations um, into the corruption um, of Vladimir Putin's government, uh, members of the gar- parliament. Mm. Um, and he had thousands and tens of thousands of supporters um, who took to the streets uh, on many occasions and he led them. Um, and he had a very large presence across the country, had regional headquarters almost in every Russian um, region. Mm. Um, and recently, you know, that was, they, they were all recognized as extremists and terrorists. Um, and that's how he sort of got this massive sentence that he was serving in this um, Arctic prison. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about this prison and the conditions of his last day. I mean, he was caught on video yesterday, yesterday looking pretty good. Yeah, he was he was making jokes. He had made an appearance during um, a court hearing via video link, and he seemed very upbeat. Um, this prison is very remote. Just to give you an idea, 
for mm-hmm. his lawyer to actually get to this prison. You know, it would take him at least 24 hours before he's he's oh arriving to, to the city. Um, hopefully tomorrow morning, Moscow time. Um, and you can't really call them. It's very remote. It's one of the um, it's the highest security prison uh, among a very few in Russia. Um, it is, you know, if you look at the map, it's like closer to the Arctic Circle um, than mm. to Moscow. So and the conditions there are really tough. Um, and we know that Navalny has been also repeatedly sent to solitary confinement, which is essentially this cold box that you sit in for mm. days on end sometimes mm-hmm. uh, without ability to move or do anything. Yeah, wow. Navalny, we know, was targeted several times, uh, nearly blinded years ago by kind of acid and then poisoned with a nerve agent, and yet he survived those. Did those attacks in a way embolden him or his supporters? Um, I think his sort of perseverance, I guess, emboldened him and his supporters because um, he did survive this poisoning attack. It was very tough recovery and his family wasn't sure if he was going to make it. Mm. Um, But then he did make it and then he decided to return to Russia. And I think, you know, he was always kind of constantly asked of why he did that. Um, Didn't he think that this was imminent death, essentially, that he would if he were to return to Russia, that he would um, end up dead. Mm. Um, And he said that for him, that was the only way to show Russians and show his supporters and to himself that, um, you know, he can be really a opposition politician outside of Russia. He needs to be inside his country. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. And that was a very... It's a remarkable showcase of bravery, um, you know, maybe not the most reasonable thing to do, but definitely for his cause and for um, people who followed him, that was um, an incredible thing to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we have read about other opposition, opposition figures when they go into exile, you know, they lose their influence. So so understand understandable. Uh, here's a clip uh, of him from the 2022 documentary Navalny. We're going to hear director Daniel Rohr asking Navalny, What do you want the Russian people to know in case he dies? If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Oh, come on, Daniel. No, no way. Like you're making movie for the case of my death. Like, again, I'm I'm ready to answer your question. But please let me let it be uh, another movie, movie number two. Mary, you have reported on, on Russia for so long. How did Navalny strike you as a voice, as a symbol? He was definitely a symbol of hope um, in many ways. And he, I think to this day, even if you look at his yesterday's appearance in court, it just amid those circumstances that he found himself in, he kept laughing, he kept smiling, he kept Mm. um, saying that everything will be fine one day. And I think that's the message that um, a lot of people, especially Russians who are opposing the war, who are in exile, that is something that they don't hear very often. They don't necessarily believe in it. So for them, kind of to see him being probably in, being probably you know in the worst situation possible. You know, you're in exile. You're outside. You're relatively safe, and he is in prison mm-hmm. and above the Arctic Circle or near the Arctic Circle. Um, and that was certainly instilled hope. And I think a lot of people may have lost that hope now if he is indeed um, dead. Yeah, we have been speaking to Mary Lucina of the Washington Post. Mary, thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up, Scott and Celeste Headley continue the conversation after the break with our weekly politics roundtable. They've got some analysis of how the news about Navalny is reverberating here in the U.S., as well as the other political news of the week. Stick around. Stick around. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Russian politics are affecting U.S. politics yet again. This morning at a security conference in Munich, Vice President Harris blamed Russia for the reported death in prison of Alexei Navalny, President Vladimir Putin's leading political opponent. If confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear, Russia is responsible. And Harris slammed Congress for delaying additional military aid for Ukraine. She called it a gift to Vladimir Putin. And she called former President Trump's thinking foolish, without naming him after Trump this week, encouraged Putin to attack NATO allies who don't, in his words, pay their bills. We should note that is not how NATO finances work. Let's bring in our Friday politics roundtable. Scott Wong is senior congressional reporter for NBC News. Ron Elving, senior Washington editor and correspondent at NPR. Hello to you both. Hello to you, Scott. Uh, If I can start with you, Ron, this afternoon, President Biden praised Navalny and contrasted him with Putin. He was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and where it applied to everybody. Ron, this, you know, good guy versus bad guy framing, what do you make of the tone? Certainly, President Biden in this instance has worldwide opinion on his side. Our Western allies, at the very least, have lined up saying similar condemnatory things about Putin and assigning him responsibility for Navalny's death. Navalny was a believer in democracy, a a believer in a voting system that actually produces competition. And he was a long, long time Putin critic. And given what has happened to so many other people who did those things, uh, it's uh, not a great leap to see Navalny's death as being part of Putin's longtime reign of, of well, shall we call it terror or shall we mm. shrink from using that particular word? Yeah. Scott, Vice President Harris said, uh, if we only look inward, we can't defeat threats from outside. She also said there are real questions about the future of, quote, America's role in leadership. At this moment in Congress, there is a clear isolationist strain within the Republican Party. Are are Republicans following Trump's lead on Russia policy? At the moment, it sure looks like it. Uh, You know, Republicans are divided, but the vast majority of them are following Trump's lead, especially as it pertains to providing additional uh, military aid to Ukraine. The Senate earlier this week passed a a massive $95 billion 
uh, funding bill for Ukraine as well as for Israel-Taiwan. It, it did pass overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis, 70 to 29, but it's going nowhere in the Republican-controlled House. Mike Johnson has said that it needs a stricter, tough border provisions attached to it, but that's precisely what uh, a bipartisan group had negotiated in the Senate to start with. So uh, the the two parties are not seeing eye to eye on border provisions. That is the holdup uh, for this very, very critical Ukraine funding. And as we know, uh, Zelensky has said, you know, in, in a matter of weeks, a matter of months, they could be out of ammunition mm-hmm. and, uh, f- you know, funding. And, and uh, you know, they really do run the risk of losing this war with Russia. Yeah. And, and on that funding, President Biden called it bizarre and outrageous that the House would go in a two-week break without passing more aid to Ukraine. Whereas Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance, he went to this Munich conference saying, no more blank checks for Ukraine. Ron, is this a familiar movie here, congressional war fatigue that, you know, some countries, some leaders like Putin can count on from Washington? I do think that there's every evidence that Putin is counting on exactly that from Washington. There has been talk for months that support for Ukraine, while strong and bipartisan two years ago, has been waning on the Republican side and waning for some time. So J.D. Vance, who is certainly... Uh, one of the people who Donald Trump helped get into the Senate, and uh, certainly someone who speaks for the conservative populist or right-wing populist motion or movement, I should say, within the Republican Party at our, at, at our hour. This time in history, we are seeing isolationism come back in the Republican Party in a way we haven't really seen since before World War II in the 1930s when there was an America First committee that was very popular and very powerful around the country right up to the point of Pearl mm. Harbor. So, Scott, let's bring it back home here. It's been a week of of ups and downs for Trump in court. Um, He goes on trial March 25th for hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. Yesterday, outside the courtroom, without any evidence, uh, he blamed President Biden for it. What it is is election interference. It's being run by Joe Biden's White House. So, Scott, what do we know about how these court trials are affecting voters? Well, I think what we know is that Trump is in the news every single day. We see Trump in the courtroom. We see the headlines because there are four cases that are playing out over the course of this year. This is going to be a constant headline. It's going to be constantly in the news. Uh, It's unclear how it's going to affect the election, but I think, uh, you know, there is a we, we talked about the word fatigue. There is a fatigue hmm. about President Trump. That happened after four years of his presidency. Certainly, uh, you know, voters that were tired of him then are going to be tired of him constantly being in the headlines in a presidential election year leading up to November. But again, we're in February. It's a long way off from the election. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the case that's been the focus of a lot of us this, of us this week, the Georgia state criminal case against former President Trump. Defense lawyers accused prosecutor Fonnie Willis uh, because of a romantic relationship with a fellow prosecutor she hired. She was defiant on the stand yesterday when confronted with questions about trying to keep it secret. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. no. This is the truth, Judge. It it, it is a lie. It is a lie. Ron, does this, I mean, it's dramatic testimony. Does this appreciably 
changed this case, the optics surrounding this case? It has changed the atmosphere around the case. It has put the focus on Fannie Willis and the prosecutor with whom she has been involved. And that takes the focus off of Donald Trump and all of his co-defendants that had been building up prior to what was expected to be a trial. So anytime you can change the subject from being the alleged perpetrator of a crime to being the, shall we say, personal business of the prosecutor, the personal business of the district attorney who hired that prosecutor, you have at the very least distracted a lot of people and you are having some kind of an effect on the potential jury trial. The potential pool of jurors who will be called from that very area where this is very heavily being covered in all of the media to be potential jurors in that uh, in that trial should that trial actually come about. So at, at the very least, what it risks is the timetable for that trial and uh, it could, in the long run, make it very difficult for this trial to proceed. So, Scott, the GOP has tried for quite some time to link Joe Biden to his son Hunter's business dealings in Ukraine and China. That narrative was severely undercut yesterday when the FBI charged a former informant with lying about those ties. The informant's allegations were the basis for the Republican impeachment inquiry. What happens now? Well, yeah, and and now the impeachment inquiry is clouded uh, even further. Uh, it, it is a it is hard to see uh, how the how James Comer, who has been leading the impeachment inquiry, uh, is going to be able to build additional support for his case for the impeachment of Joe Biden, uh, given what has happened with this FBI informant. Uh, Separately, you know, the the Democrats have eaten into the Republican majority uh, by electing uh, by with the election of Tom Suozzi up in the New York Third Congressional District in that special election earlier this week. That means the Republican majority has shrunk even further. Republicans this week were barely able to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, by just one vote. It does not bode terribly well for Republicans in their quest to impeach the president when uh, they had at first failed to impeach Mayorkas and then on a second try were able to impeach him by just that one vote. Uh, you know, if I'm looking at this right now, it looks increasingly difficult that we that the Republicans will be able to impeach the president later this year, especially as we march closer to the election itself. Yeah. And Ron, as far as the election, we learned Today, that West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin will not run for president as an independent or third-party candidate. Does that put an end to third-party hopes for 2024? No, it does not. Mm-hmm. The no-labels people who are trying to get a third option on the ballot in as many states as possible, certainly swing states, is not going to be deterred. They're going to carry forward trying to find someone else. Joe Manchin was not really their holy grail, they would like to get somebody who's more broadly known and somebody who would more clearly have uh, appeal to both parties. And they will continue to try. Uh, Scott, in the 30 seconds that we have left, um, abortion has become an issue, has repeatedly been a real issue in some of the um, elections that we've seen recently. Trump says he likes the idea of a 16-week abortion ban with exceptions for rape and incest. Any idea what his political calculation is? No, I can't get into Trump's head. I do know that uh, in addition to 
the border issue up in the New York third special special uh, race this week. Uh, Tom Swazi ran towards the the border issue. Uh, he said Republicans mm-hmm. have walked away from the table in addressing the border. Yeah. But I also know that abortion was also a big issue yeah. in propelling him to victory. Scott Wong, senior congressional reporter for NBC News, and Ron Elving, senior Washington editor and correspondent at NPR. Thank you. Coming up, well, they say a love that's real will not fade away. And that certainly rings true for deadheads. The Grateful Dead broke up decades ago, but their archival releases are selling better than ever. So well, in fact, that they just broke the record for the most top 40 albums. Celeste turns on, tunes in, and drops out after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea. Their Mega Moisture Duo features two of their clean, vegan bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop, And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Grateful Dead broke up when Jerry Garcia died almost 30 years ago, but the music never stopped. By some measures, the dead are more popular now than ever. This song is from their latest archival release, Dave's Picks, Volume 49. It debuted at number 25 on last week's Billboard 200. This is the band's 59th album in the top 40, breaking a record previously held by Elvis and Frank Sinatra. Most of those top 40s have come in the last 15 years. And the person listening to thousands of hours of live dead shows searching for gems, the Dave of Dave's Picks, is the band's archivist, David Lemieux, who joins me now. Hi there. Hey, Celeste. How are you? I'm good. So this album, Volume 49, is drawn from two shows, as I understand, both in April of 1985, performed at the Frost Amphitheater in Palo Alto, California. That's where the dead really launched nearly... 20 years before these shows occur. Why did you uh, pull from these concerts? 
Well, you know, uh, the Dave's Pick series, really the only criteria for the series is great music. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing is going through the Grateful Dead's archive of close to 2,000 live concerts and listening to a lot of them and choosing the best shows for release. And one year we hadn't uh, released in the series yet was 1985. And as it turned out, the two nights at Stanford, um, at, at the Frost Amphitheater at Stanford University, were both so good. It was one of those moments where we really couldn't decide which to release. Mm-hmm. And 1985, a very important year in dead history. It was, as you mentioned, their 20th anniversary. Uh, it's hard to believe here we are in their 59th year now. Uh, but in their 20th <laughs> year, it was a big year for the dead. And they were hometown shows. The dead got their start in Palo Alto, playing in Menlo Park down the road. And, you know, before they went up to San Francisco and then Marin County. So let's hear a little music. I assume we're going to be listening to a lot of it. Um, this is a little bit of the jam from Scarlet Begonias. <laughs> So you are looking up through 1995, of course, that's when Jerry Garcia died. I assume that means you are not including any of the post-Jerry Garcia material that was recorded uh, when they were known as Dead and Company. Correct. Dead and Company, they uh, they have got a tremendous um, series of live webcasts, and they're kind of separate entities while at the same time really being a continuation of the big picture, which the big picture, in, in my mind, is the Grateful Dead. And so Dead and Company is out there with, with Bobby and Mickey from the original band and John Mayer and and a really good band they put together. And they are performing Grateful Dead music and performing it extremely well to extremely large crowds and very enthusiastic crowds. You'd mentioned that the Dead might be as popular now or maybe even more so than they ever were. And I would agree with that. I mean, I see this top 40 record that the Dead have just achieved. Uh, Dead and Company selling out, you know, everywhere they go. And those include big stadiums. I was seeing the Dead in 1987 through 93. I saw them a lot. And uh, they're as popular now as they were when I was seeing them. I should say that's backed up by evidence. There was a a poll done um, some years ago, 2015, I think, that showed that they're more popular among younger people than among baby boomers who would have been able to see them live. And in fact, surprising, maybe surprisingly to some people, especially because the dead were associated with more of a hippie culture, Republicans recognize the band more and like them more than Democrats or independents, which, again, a little surprising. But let's talk about what makes them so relevant all these years later, nearly 30 years after Jerry died. What do you think it is? I mean, this is a kind of an essential, a long-standing question for the Grateful Dead, right? It is, and I, it, without a doubt, it, it's the music. It's the timeless quality of the music and the feeling that music gives you when you see it live, when you hear it live, and nothing has changed. I mean, when I see Dead & Company live, I love the music, I love listening to it, I love the sound, I love dancing, but I also love, as kind of an older guy in the crowd, looking around and seeing tens of thousands of people much, much younger than I am getting the same experience I got 35 years ago. And and that is the thing is once you get a dose of dead, once you're, as we say, on the bus, 
very few people exit that bus door. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good trip to be on. It's a great music and it's a great community. So in some ways, I wonder if their enduring popularity is because they go against the sort of um, corporate canned music that most of us hear on our top 40 radios all the time. In other words, I mean, you couldn't have a more anti-capitalist band than The Dead, right? I mean, a lot of their popularity was because people made bootleg recordings and traded them. Every live performance was different. I mean, that's what they were known for is improvisation. So you are not going to that show to hear the song done the exact way it was done in the album. And I also wonder if they were able to play so many shows because they didn't include the kind of highly choreographed athletic performance. Not that playing these concerts isn't tough, but, you know, they weren't dancing around the stage like, you know, Taylor Swift and Janet Jackson. Is there kind of a quintessential, when you talk about this culture of the both the dead and their fans, is, is there a song that comes to mind that sort of captures that? Well, there, yeah, there's a few. And, and one that has always captured it for me is, and, and this is almost a cliche, but it's also something that uh, the mainstream fan might not know, where everybody, I think, knows Truckin' and Uncle John's Band yeah. and Touch of Grey and songs like that. But then there was one major improvisational number the dead had. It was called Dark Star. <laughs> was a song that embodied the improvisational open spirit of the Grateful Dead and Deadheads because it was a song that it had two verses and it had a little bit of a melody but otherwise what happened between those verses and the song could run up to 40 minutes long but it was always unique on any given night you could almost tell the mood of the band based on how Dark Star went it could be a beautiful positive uplifting moment it could be a little deep and dark and and really have some i don't want to say dark energy the dead certainly weren't about dark energy but it could dig a little deeper and go a little bit more psychedelic Dark Star is not on uh, volume 49, but uh, another one that everyone probably recognizes, Trucking, is. Considering the thousands of times the Grateful Dead played that song, what made this performance different? What made it notable? Trucking, it's an interesting song. There's a, there's a classic video clip of, of Deadheads on video asking the band questions. And one of the questions was, hey, Bob, when, if ever, are you going to get trucking straight? And this is a song that Bob wrote with Robert Hunter and Jerry and Phil, and he still got the verses wrong. I'm going to say more often than not. And so you always got a sense of the Grateful Dead having a ton of fun when they played trucking. They knew it was their big quote-unquote hit at the time. A couple years later, they had Touch of Grey, which was even bigger than trucking had been in 1970. But... They always seem to have a ton of fun. And these shows in particular, um, when the Dead played the Frost, which they did most years from 82 to 89, 
they were daytime shows. So you can just feel how much fun they're having. And when they sing that line, what a long, strange trip it's been, there's a little bit extra there. And that's something I love about The Grateful Dead. People ask, what makes a great show different from just an average show? And it's little things like that where you get the sense that the band is having a little bit of extra fun. They're really aware, they're connecting with the audience. And this trucking is such a wonderful version. And it goes into one of their, I think, one of their psychedelic masterpieces, a song called The Other One. Well, if people aren't intrigued enough to, to at least take a listen to the album, uh, I, I would be very surprised. But for those who are not deadheads, for those who are not sold on this music yet, is there a song off this album, uh, Dave's Picks number 49, that you would suggest we go out on to give people a taste? Yeah, you know what? I I really, I love the music Never Stopped and Scarlet Begonias, which I think we've touched on. Uh, there's a great song that was in the repertoire from about 1970 onward called Going Down the Road Feeling Bad. Going down the road feeling bad. Going down the road feeling bad. It's actually a cover song. It's an old traditional song that the dead have picked up on. Um, but it's just going down the road feeling bad, going where the climate suits my clothes. It sums up us on the road as deadheads and the band on the road as a touring, working band. Going where the water tastes like wine. That's the one. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. David Lemieux is the archivist for The Grateful Dead. Thanks. Thanks, Celeste. Hey, any of you deadheads going to the Sphere, have a great show. Reach out with any miracles for your favorite daily news podcaster. Well, it's all over now, Baby Blue, as far as today's episode is concerned. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Karen Casey Jones Miller Medson and Lazy Lightning Lynn Menagon, as well as me, Chris Bentley. See you on Shakedown. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Michaela Varela. Mike also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you Monday, and we bid you good night. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Betterment. Confusing eye contact with a mysterious stranger is never chill. But Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.